The Sports Career Podcast, episode 314. How can sport policy improve human rights from global sporting events? Sports Achiever and welcome back to another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. I'm your host Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in sports policy and sports law. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is David Alfred. David is a lawyer at Clifford Chance and a member of the Global ECG Board, where he has experience in investigations of governance, risk, environmental, human rights and sports law. For that reason, it's such a pleasure to have David as a podcast special guest on the show. And that's when today's episode, David will share his sports career journey and explain to you how sport policy can influence human rights at global sporting events. David, it's such a pleasure to have you on the Sports Career Podcast. Please you share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Thanks for having me, Ed. Um, so quick introduction, guys. Hi, my name is David Olfrey. Um, I'm a lawyer uh, with Clifford Chance. I'm based out in London. I'm also a member of our, our global ESG board, and that's going to come into relevance, no doubt, as part of this, this conversation. But Ed, you put me on the spot by asking me the, the hardest question, which is how did I engage with sport and how did that come about? Well, the reality is almost in error. Um, I actually came into uh, contact with sport when I was assisting the Center for Sport and Human Rights in its establishment and in its founding. Um, and as part of my job was really to come in to look at this from a very objective perspective. Now, the first question someone asked me was, so what team do you support? And I had to very curtly tell them, none. Um, <laughs> It was it was probably a, a very telling point for for my sporting career because I actually did I used to love playing sport in part all the 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 high schools through university you'd enjoy a little bit of a kickabout but actually do I watch it no and did I participate in many of them also no and that actually brought a whole new refreshing lens to this conversation because I wasn't looking at sport as a fan I was looking at sport um, very critically as a lawyer. And I wanted to know exactly where the gaps were, where the opportunities were. And it seemed like it was a space that could really do with a hand. Um, and again, I'm sure we'll dive into some of what, what that means in, in a second. But really, that's, uh, that's where it all began. And since then, I've not been able to get away from it. Um, clearly, there's a lot to be doing there. Well, we're going to talk in a lot more detail some of the projects and some of the things you're doing behind the scenes. But just going back for any like young lawyers or people who want to be a lawyer, like can you actually remember that sort of decision of being a lawyer? Because it is a commitment. I've interviewed other lawyers. You know, it does take a long time with regards to the education side, the pathway, which area of law. I can tell human rights is a topic that has a meaningful aspect to you, just from the little hint 
right from the beginning, but just going back in time, just to paint the picture, can you actually remember the moment when you were, I'm going to be a lawyer, before we talk about the sports industry itself? Absolutely. So um, it must have been I was about 15 or 16. Um, and I remember going to my dad and being like, hey, I would want to be a lawyer. My dad's, an, my dad's a chartered accountant. He's a numbers guy. And for the longest time, he was always like, are you sure it's not accounting? And I was just like, quite sure. The opposite of accounting, law, please. And the reason for that is law is really in many ways, it's, it's, it's storytelling, right? There is a lot of there's a lot of underlying conversations that are happening within people. The people are expressing what happened, the evidence they present, how they perceive it, what the judges take out from that conversation is a whole new interpretation of the exact same number of facts. And to me, that was a very fascinating place to start. And so when I looked at, you know, I came from Pakistan originally, um, law and order was not at its peak during my, it's still not, let's be honest, but uh, law and order at that point was definitely a work in progress. And um, as I was growing up, there was so much discord, but I realized that the one thing that tends to hold fabric together that brings commonality amongst people is their acceptance that a law says that something is good, acceptable, bad. And within that space, you then have all of these various unknown unknowns coming up. So you walk down the street, you know, you trip over something. Whose fault is that? Is that even someone's fault? Um, you know, you get injured in a car accident, going bigger. You have transactions. The transactions fall apart because things are outside of people's control. How does all of this play out? And how does all of this tie in um, in a way that that makes us function as a, as a civilization? And I really love that little curiosity of what can you possibly do when you get the law right? And in truth, that's what drove me here. It was sort of I want to see, I, I accept that this is a fabric of our society and this is a great foundation, but I want to see if I really was being creative with it. What could we actually achieve? What, what, what could we do for those like those in Pakistan who don't necessarily have the protection of law? Um, how do we actually bring this forward in a way that actually allows people to also celebrate that? Now, I know it sounds like a very superhero uh, perspective on law, but sometimes when you're young, you've got to believe that to drive for it. And it's definitely no law and order, and you're absolutely right. You know, there's a lot of hard work involved. Once you get here, be ready to grind. It's 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 tough. It's a very curious space. There's a lot going on, but it is tough, and you're you're gonna have to to sit down and be like, do I really love what I'm doing? And that's really where things like subject matter play a big part. Because if what you're doing isn't a subject matter that you love, it's not really effort anymore. And I mean, there's many people who've said this before. You know, your job should be what you love doing, and that helps you get through your job. And that's really it. That, that's what it is for me anyway. And I, I absolutely love what I do now. I want to dig into that a bit more. There's a phrase that I've never heard from other lawyers and I can, two parts to it is the storytelling. I know you gave an example of it makes it easier from an educational standpoint for people who don't understand that field or don't understand the role itself. But the key part of the question is how has creativity made you a better lawyer? Oh, wow. You asked the, you asked the difficult questions. Um, sincerely, let me put it to you in a practical example. Um, if somebody came to you and said, right, so what happened was at 9am, I did this and at 10am, I did that. Now you've heard this conversation and there's obviously in every court case that you've ever even heard, watched, seen, um, been part of, you, you will notice that that same set of facts is used pro and con in an, in an argument. That creativity is really the ability to understand, okay, let me challenge that a little bit further. So you said between nine and 10. So what happened between nine and 9.15? So what happened over here? And actually dig down into it. Let's say granular with it. Let's talk about why something happened, not just what happened. 
how did you react when something happened? And that creativity process is, is really the same that I would say is, you know, I, I used to love journaling and writing. And, and as you write, you start thinking, ooh, who is this character? Why are they here? What is their story? Where do they come from? And you start building this out. Now, typically also in the transactional world, which is a lot of what I do, um, you do have major transactions where people come with brilliant ideas. I work in the ESG space. Carbon credits are an up and coming thing. And someone comes to you and says, I believe I can save nature. Um, here's what I need to be able to do. Can you tell me if the laws provide for it? And if not, help me, all right? And that's not something that is just copy paste, stick it down on a piece of paper, send it out, get them to sign it, get your fees and go. That is, I'm going to block out my calendar because I need to sit down with a whiteboard and I just need to draw this out. I need to figure out what's going on. How can we make this work? And that level of creativity is a very commercial aspect. It's very entrepreneurial. But at the same time, when you come out of it, the story you're telling is a very real one. It's, I experienced this as I was going through it. I believe now that there is an actual opportunity to save nature. Before this, this was just a question that was put to me. And that creativity, I think, is, is so fundamentally important for lawyers. You cannot believe that going into something like the law is just a process-driven career. It is really one that requires you to engage with it. And sometimes, you know, you come out and be like, oh, well, that was really obvious. And sometimes you're like, that was amazing. That was so much fun. Um, and sometimes the answer is, I don't know. And so you sit down and start figuring it out again or talk to people. And it's a process. With regards to, I'm digging to even more now because I want us to understand that this is a skill set because I bet as a lawyer over the years, you've had cases after cases after cases, and it could be that sort of wash, rinse, repeat. Would you say that yeah. creativity is the element of that self-belief in what you stand for in that certain case? Does that sort of make sense? So it, it gives, it, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's uh, not just having a process of a checklist. It's actually believing in what you stand for in this certain situation or case, whatever the case is from nine to five, we've got a fun case study, but, and I think actually we started this podcast at nine twenty, David, not nine fifteen. <laughs> like it's that, so I'm giving you a fun example, but is that what you mean about creativity? It can be a skill of how we get that buy-in in that piece of work. Cause if not, it could be very repetitive and, I think I assume from a lawyer standpoint, because the number of hours, it creates that burnout. So I just want you to go another level of that creativity as a skill. So look, I think it's important firstly to say the foundation of law is that everybody deserves the right to legal representation. And that means you don't always necessarily start at the point of saying, I believe or I agree. It means I start at the point of saying, I am willing to support your case and or your matter or whatever it might be. You know, the context of criminal law, it's very important, in fact, sometimes that you don't get personally invested into that case. Um, you know, there are safeguards in place to make sure lawyers don't end up becoming too close to any one thing because that objectivity is very important. I don't necessarily link the objectivity to your creativity. I think the two are, are, are different conversations. They're mutually exclusive in the sense that you can be objective and you can be uh, creative. And you can also be creative and be subjective. Now, the idea here of a skill set is very, very important because absolutely creativity is a skill set, right? You need to understand when to be creative and when you should not necessarily have to be creative. So some things are, you know, the sky is blue, doesn't need creativity, the sky is blue, that's okay. If you start being creative with something like that, you're probably not acting uh, in a way that is going to help your client out. 
So you need to be able to distinguish when to trigger which part of your brain and which parts do require some creativity. Now, really it's an investigation process when it comes to litigation, where you're trying to say, actually, I'm going to dig deeper. It's a curiosity. It's, it's like an ar archeologist, right? In the field, you're just going deeper and deeper and deeper until you find something you're looking for, or you don't, and you accept that and you move on. And if you are too personally invested into that, you may not be able to accept when is enough, when is the right time to move along. But Definitely, process does burn people out and there are law professions which have process in it and that's an efficiency. That is something that people actually enjoy doing. You know, real estate is a good example where um, for your standard conveyancing, buying, selling houses, you will have standard forms you need to fill in. You need to ask the same questions. You need to have certain things done and, and dusted. And actually people are very, very good at doing that. And that is a skill in itself. So I wouldn't erase creativity, I wouldn't raise the law career if you just are like, I just don't feel like being a creative person. But I would encourage you, even in a process-driven job, try and be creative. You, I know it's been done a thousand times, but the thousand and first time it gets done might be something new and might be something worth, worth looking at. You know, there are terms for this, continuous improvement is a term you typically hear in the, in the legal space, which is really, if something's working, the concept goes, if something's working, don't break it, yes. But if something's working, you can improve it, why not? And that's where the creativity comes in. So even in a process-driven space, you do have that ability. But is creativity a skill set? I love that question. I, don't, I wouldn't say there is a right or wrong answer to that. But I personally believe that, yes, creativity is a skill set. And it's something you learn. You learn to celebrate it. And I think that that's equally important. I'm going to jump one step further, if I may, which is find the right environment for that creativity, because that's really important to develop that skill set of being creative. I've been very lucky um, in that I work with a firm who've allowed me to be me. They've actually said on several occasions that, look, if this is something you want to try, go for it. And the Center for Sport and Human Rights was one of those things, ironically. But actually having that space where your creativity is celebrated rather than quashed is very important to develop that skill set of being able to be creative. Um, and I think when you are looking to go into a career in law, think about it from the perspective of, I'm doing this for the rest of my life. But you are building a number of skill sets. The first of which is the academic piece, which is the law. You are learning to be critical, you're learning to be analytical, and you're, you've, you've, you've got the academia just to back that up. The next part is the application, which is where the creativity comes in, because you need to be able to advise your clients using what you know to meet their particular circumstances, whatever it might be, whatever type of law. And then you've got the last piece, which is, right, everything else I want to do in life. And those are things that you actually care about. So it might be something as, I know I could be, I'm not a tax lawyer, but I could be a tax lawyer who really loves watching football. And maybe I want to go into football and say, what can I do with tax and football? Now that isn't an obvious line for many. Sometimes there is. I mean, I know there's tax evasion cases and all the rest of that, but let's be creative about it. What, what can I do with these two? That that linear over there is, is, is not a drawn line for you, but that is one that you can draw for yourself. And that comes out when you are sitting in an environment that allows you to do that in combination with your creativity, because that is your proactivity there, and in combination with your knowledge that you otherwise have sitting behind it. So don't think about going to law and be like, oh, I'm just going to be going to court every day. No, you are going to be trying to achieve what you really want to achieve through a means. And that's true for almost every career, I think. But as a lawyer, I can speak to that as being true for law. Just, I'm going to decode this. I've got a couple of questions. With regards to that second phase, because you said the first phase is get the education behind you. The second phase is application. How 
has that application improved your communication skills? Because even from my experience, when you leave that university bubble, when you're working with clients, the thing that I've learned is the more you're in those environments with a client or for me, a podcast special guest, it's honing in on your communication skills. So reflecting, how has being a sports lawyer improved your communication skills? Well, firstly, um, I am a lawyer. I do sports. I wouldn't call myself a sports lawyer. And I think that's a distinction I'm going to draw out. So get ready for that. But um, my communication skills, no, look, it, it comes down to without the academia, and, and this goes to, I, I'm, I'm hoping it's true for many, many parts of, of our world as we know it, but without the knowledge on which you stand, it's very hard to be competent and confident in how you communicate about it. So don't try to blag it. You know, you hear fake it till you make it. Actually, yes, but you get caught out relatively quickly. You can fake it for the first five minutes. After that, someone's going to ask you another question and you're going to start slipping and tripping. So this is why I started by saying the academia, the knowledge that that is so important to give you the confidence to then apply and communicate as well on that subject matter. Now, honestly, I came out of university. I was scared. I, I had no idea what the world was going to hold for me. I'd never seen this, you know, this, the size of transactions, the numbers that we're talking about. Like I've, to me, it was like, wow, this is a whole new world. How am I going to be one of them? Um, I wouldn't say so much as imposter, but just that nervousness and excitement you feel when you're just like, right, this is a whole new page. It's a whole new book. Let's go. And um, yeah, when people ask me, what is this? And I think I know about this law. I can talk about it. And then you, you say your answer and it's not always right. And they're like, actually, go and look at it again. And then you scale up and you're like, oh, now that I looked at it a little bit deeper, I challenged myself. I challenged the text I knew, the challenge, the course that was stored. Let's begin. And suddenly you start building it up and it becomes a habit. But in time, you suddenly know when to say, I have no idea. I do not have the answer to that. And I'm confident saying that, that that's fine for me. I'm okay with that. Like if you asked me right now, Ed, you would just like, tell me about derivatives. Not a clue, right? And I'm fine with that. And that's okay because that's the sort of, when it comes to communication, I think that's what the most important part to me has always been, which is, you know, just, Put in the effort to get to where you want to be, but then for the next part of it, don't be afraid to say you don't know something. There is no fault in that. Um, in fact, people will likely trust you more when you're like, I don't know, but I can go and find out because you have the skill set to find out. We've already established that. The point is you're not trying to articulate something you don't really understand or believe or feel, or actually you may actually know the answer and you're just not 100% sure. So you can just be like, I think I've got it, but you know what, to be safe, I'll come back to you. And people would, it's fine. It's normal. I love this. I need to dig deep. One more thing on this. So you're saying the important factor of that part you've just said, it's that self-awareness, because when you couple self-awareness with communication, you're going to be more better professional and you build trust and build relationships within the clients and the work you're doing. Because honestly, I, heard, I saw that in your body language, but is that the right word? Um, that self-awareness piece? Yeah. I mean, yes. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm in no way suggesting that is easy. And I'm in no way suggesting that that is a point you reach and you're like, tick, done. I am I'm very conscious that self-awareness, much like creativity, much like proactivity, much, much like learning is an ongoing process. And yes, I think it is an added value. Um, and, I, and I would say that's true for my experiences in sport as well, is to be like, what, who am I? What, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And also, why am I trying to say or do something in a way that necessarily I either don't agree or believe or know 
candidly. Um, or another way around. And I like that. I like the idea of putting it as communication plus self-awareness brings up your trust. It's not always the case, but yes, it, it really helps in interpersonal. Mm -hmm. As a rule of thumb, I think it's general for the listener. I want to just one more part with the three phases, because I love that. And I hope the listeners are taking notes. We, just to recap, it's the education, the application. And the third one, I would say, is your personal interest. Would you say, on relating to your career, now I've done a bit of research on yourself, your interest is that human rights and policy and then you apply the legal aspect like you said you're a lawyer working in sport but would you say they're the two aspects um so think about that because the one thing i've had consistently just be clear david from other lawyers on my podcast they've all there's a similar pattern where they've all said from career advice like be the best lawyer not be the best sports lawyer like you know so i want to relate to that point with your interest of human rights and uh, policy like just emphasize that to the listeners because then they can visualize going what's out there in the legal world but you still have to be a good lawyer from the beginning yeah so let's take that as given yeah, take, take that as given i agree with every lawyer out there who has said this because it is true you are being hired for your legal services not for your interests in something so you are hired to be a lawyer and so be a lawyer first and then apply that skill set to everything else. Now let's go to the the latter part because for me it's it's been strange. I I, I came out of university and many of many people I know have everything figured out day one. Yeah, you know, I, I figured I wanted to be a lawyer. That was already an achievement compared to some. And then others, when I got to university, knew exactly what type of law they were going to do the day they walked in, and I I had no clue. Um, I didn't know what most of these laws were, what what these areas were. Um. And so I went for it. I, I decided to keep an open mind and let me just learn along the way. And hopefully, that hopefully something calls out to me. And it did. It did. And you're right. It is human rights. It's environment. But above and beyond all of those, I realized that you, you talked about policy. I would rephrase that as governance. Um, governance is policy. Yes and no, of course. But I'm sure there'll be people on both sides of that argument. But the reason I say that is because what I'm more interested in is personally looking at it from a systems perspective. So I want to know how are you structured to facilitate upholding human rights? How are you structured to limit or mitigate or even prevent your impact on the environment or on nature, indigenous populations, people, children? Um, how can you improve things? And all of that to me sits within that governance space. Now, what's the result of good governance should be that these are points that are addressed, but actually more importantly, when you talk about policy, as a lawyer in a private sector, I focus my attention on, I'm supposed to, to say this i'm supposed to focus my attention on the private sector but it's very hard for the private sector to operate without strong policy regulation laws and so it's almost inevitable that you have an eye at all times to the to the policy side and that's actually been a huge driver because what you realize very quickly is actually governance is that little connecting line between the two um so you can actually help structure a business while also help structuring the policy so that when the policy lands and the business is restructured, it works. And that's the objective here is that it, it's, it, well, that isn't the objective. What it might be an objective. It's the alignment. It's your hand is the alignment. It is the alignment, right? Yeah. But when I say it's the objective, not everyone has the objective of, of being say, of saying, actually what my objective is, is to ensure that human rights are progressed. Some people will have an objective of making the most money. Some people will have an objective of saving the most trees. These are all different objectives, but you can achieve your objectives. And this is the point that I'm really driving for. And I hope my, my career will, will tell this story in many ways. 
which is that you can achieve both of those objectives. You know, money does not compromise people and, and, and planet. That's my argument here. In fact, you can do all of it and it'll still be fully aligned. And the, the challenge is really within the legal sphere is that many people say, it's not the law, why should I do it? You're right, it's not, which is where the argument goes back to policy. But what if it became the law in three years time? You wanna spend this money all over again because policy is moving in that direction. And that's the conversation you have. It's a difficult one to have. But that's really where, so my interest as I was going through my career developed into that governance space where I was thinking to myself, these are massive businesses. They run, you know, employees in 750,000 employees. You know, you're just thinking, my gosh, you could literally change one company and in doing so impact a huge amount of people globally. Let's do it then. Let, let's take on that challenge of doing something as ridiculous as that. Now imagine you could do it for a company. Now multiply for an industry. Now for an ecosystem, right? And suddenly you realize, oh my gosh, it's, it's the same, just you're willing to take on a slightly bigger challenge. It's gonna take you slightly longer, of course, but if that were to work, you don't just change one company with 750,000. You don't just change, for example, the sports organizer. You change with the sports organizer, the sponsors, the investors, the unions, the laws, the regulators, the hosts. And suddenly you sit in a space where you're like, actually, that was pretty fun. I'll do that all over again now. That's the sport ecosystem. You then have other ecosystems as well that exist, right? Where you've got a different set of stakeholders, same logic, same concept. And many of these, you soon realize is that they're all interconnected. Everyone knows Coca-Cola is a big sponsor of mega sport, yes, but they're also food and, uh, and food and beverages. And so they're probably going to be quite ingrained in the community over there, which is supply chains building out for food and water. And so if you can fix it over here, uh, just move that over here. So move it within the business into different parts of the focus of the business. And suddenly you're actually changing entire ecosystems, plural. That's a big end game, but you know what? Why not? Why not? I'm going to give you a curveball now, and you're not going to like the question I'm going to ask. With all these ecosystems, which makes sense, but as you know, it doesn't always connect with different cultures around the world. And this is probably where your human rights interest kicks in, or more culture as well. So with that curveball, I get exactly what you're saying, and we're going quite deep now with regards to the policy, the governance, the ecosystem. But would you say the culture makes this industry interesting of how things are done the right way, but being mindful of other different countries' cultures, keeping it very simple. United Kingdom's culture is different to the United States. The United States is different to Australia, Fiji. Like I'm going quite broad, but I'm trying to just uh, paint the picture to the, to the listeners that would you say that's the fundamental hard aspect of your job when you have to implement it through different countries' cultures? Yeah, 100%. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, the hardest part of what we have to do is create something that's global, but equally respects local. And I do that as a living, right? So this is when I say ESG, whether in sport or without sport, right? Let's just go into ESG for one second. Two, two aspects are very, very local. Human rights is one of them, and biodiversity is the other. These are jurisdiction specific. Not, so they're not even local to like a country. It could be local to a province. You have mountains and you have ocean, right? You've got different cultures within different provinces, within countries, right? So those are very, very low, we're getting really quite narrow. There are 
when it comes to human rights, there are a lot of nuanced challenges, including what's happened in the past as being part of it. So you're you're coming at this saying, I think everyone should have the right to life, for example. Right? It's a it's common denominator. Can we all come on board with it? Yes. Okay. Um, I want also the right to freedom of expression. Okay. Now let me show you an example. I'm not going to name the country, but there's one country in which I have advised where essentially if you asked somebody because you're trying to promote, you're saying, I want to show that I'm promoting freedom of expression. So you ask people their, their gender identity and sexuality. Um, if you were to do so and they were to answer, their lives are at risk. And the right to life is suddenly cutting across life to exp uh, the freedom of expression. And that's a cultural piece. But you have to make sure that there are certain rights, that the fundamental rights of life, for example, should take precedence. Now, that is where it gets very challenging, because at a global level, we can agree that both of them are good. But as you get closer to the ground, you're starting to see, yes, they're both very good. And for us to be able to understand how it can be better, we actually have to ask really difficult questions, or people have to start putting themselves into danger. And that's a question that we need to start asking ourselves is to how much or how far or how difficult, how, how many protections can we put for these victims or potential victims? Um, how open or, or, or familiar can we make it? I, I'll give you one other example. This is from a colleague of mine, our global health diversity. He's a great guy, Tian and Brady. He gave me this one example. He's, he's changed laws on LGBTQI plus rights in, in many countries. Um, but in particular, he gave me one example where in the US, he said, you know, we always talk about the freedom, the freedom to do something, the freedom of, you know, everything is about freedom. The, the, the eagle is a sign of freedom, right? Um, he, went, he went to Japan. And in Japan, he started by talking to people and saying, freedom. And culturally, it did not connect. It, there wasn't a desire for this freedom. So he said, what about right to family, which is a local cultural point of importance? And they said, yes, of course, that's fine. And it was such a beautiful moment to me because I was just like, yes, the number of times we try and sit in ivory towers and talk about things that happen on the ground because it worked here does not mean it's going to work here, but that's because it's not supposed to. You are, you cannot, and this is, goes back to the creativity point, right? As a lawyer, you need to be cognizant of these aspects. You need to know when it's okay for, you know, there, there are situations where even in sport, especially in sport, where females are vulnerable and you, they might not appreciate having a male step in, which would be normal in some other countries. Some countries might say, actually, there's no difference and we are fine with this. We've, we've grown up in this culture. But if you go into more conservative societies, it might be very, very difficult for them to talk to somebody of an opposite gender or another gender, because that's just not been their upbringing. In fact, the upbringing is telling them, do not speak. Um, and that's a challenge you've got, to, you've got to be aware of, confront, and figure out how do we then make sure that this works within the rest of the structure. I'm going to give a, a sure. case study. Sorry to interrupt, but I think yeah. it will paint the picture. And... She's been on the podcast show, both these people. And so I think it's quite good from an educational standpoint. I had Khalida Papal and Kelly Lindsay. Kelly Lindsay was the head coach for the Afghanistan football, women's football team. She's from America. She even said, my upbringing with regards to Afghanistan and my upbringing had that certain narrative. But when I went into their environment, you know, you've got to realize that women couldn't speak to men in a certain way. And they were very, very quiet. And, 
You had Khalida, who I've had on, who's a great leader, who opened up due to Kelly's principles of what she learned in the United States, and she's applying them in what she's doing. It taught me, David, that we can't just walk in a room thinking everybody's the same. We're not with regards to our upbringing. And so I love your thoughts on that because that was such a powerful example. I'm so glad it's on the podcast because the listeners can get it that, you know, from a, I, I know you're giving me an examples behind the scenes, but this really keeps it, you know, and, and just to fun, just to make it a bit fun, this conversation, the only way Kelly Lindsay could help the actual players was doing the Macarena to help them communicate and actually understand football formation. So I'm trying to make this a fun conversation, not too serious. But what I've just said, David, is that what you're trying to say too? Um, just just to, for the listener standpoint, but also from a policy standpoint too. So I'm giving you the mic back, but thank you for letting me interrupt. Not an interruption, it's definitely additive. And I love that. I love that that it was the Macarena. See, this shows that I've, I need to go back and listen to these podcasts again, because that is a great idea. Um, but it's absolutely correct. And I think you need to have that humility with you. You need to have that humility to be like, look, I want to do good, but I don't always know how. Um, I want to help, but I haven't quite figured out yet what exactly that needs to look like. Um, and it will take time. Some of these things are really, you know, you want to do something immediately and it's just not going to happen immediately. And that is a challenge you face, but you absolutely have to it's a two-way conversation, right? These are conversations. This is this is not where we don't live in a world of diction where, where somebody walks and says, do this. It is very much a case of saying, I want to help you. And so I think I should do all of these things. And someone goes, that's not going to help me at all. And you're like, wait, what? And that that's that's a realization that there needs to be an open dialogue. And, you know, part of, part of my work in sport has, and part of the work in policy as well has been driven to increase the opportunities for what I, what, what, not me, what academics in the world have called collective action, right? Which is, we are all in this together. Hate to break it to everyone, but there is one planet, right? Um, I'd love to believe that Mars is going to happen in the next five years. Probably not. And so we need to sort this out. There are going to be challenges. These challenges are not going to get many, many of these challenges are going to get less in many ways as as we 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 get through a, a difficult next few years with, with climate and other crises. And if we accept that we're all in this together, yeah, we're, we're heading in the right direction. We'll be fine. And that is a con I, say, I can say that confidently because the second we start caring about things that people are actually saying, we, we don't just tick a box. We actually have room for dialogue. We have room for, yeah, we have people in the room, you know, and that, that makes that difference. And I think that's where, um, you know, the learnings from across the world are actually going to be very helpful to all of us. And we, we shouldn't be shy about it. I think we just need to be ready to be aware that sometimes our brilliant plan from, you know, the, the biggest, best country firm organization is just not the right one. Um, and that takes humility. Absolutely. And I love your point about the collective uh, action. I, I love that. And People, everybody, David had his arms out, like with regards to the globe. Like it's really, I really resonated what you just said there. And I actually want to tailor it in today's podcast topic. And it is a big one. And I know you will not have all the answers to it, but in general sense, and you've given it already, but just to emphasize with regards to this podcast topic, like how can sport policy slash governance, because I'd love to hear your thoughts of the slight difference, can improve human rights through the use of global sporting events. So global sporting events, everybody, we're talking like 
the Olympics, the Paralympics, um, football World Cups, men and female, like how these big, because I think they're the connection points that you said with the eagle, like sport is that connector of a, a language that connects us as human beings. But how can sport policy, but the governance elevate human rights, the right direction um, relating to your experience, but also, you know, what you're working in currently right now? So let me start with the easiest example of where this is already moving in the right direction. Um, in 2026, the Men's World Cup, FIFA World Cup, will be going to the first sort of North American World Cup, essentially Canada, USA, Mexico. What changed? Well, actually what changed was that as part of the bidding process, the United 26 bid, the host cities had to publish their human rights strategies and policies. That became part of the decision criteria. Now, I'm not saying it was weighted. I'm not sure what the weighting was. That's done behind closed doors with uh, with FIFA and others. But um, you already start to see the relevance of human rights come up into that conversation. But you know, I'm I'm going to pause for one second because I want to take this back one step. Let's let's look a little little bit into the history of of, of human rights themselves. So, human rights, of course, have been a concept that everyone has agreed to the ECHR, so the European Commission um, has already published its human rights. But what did it mean for the private sector? It was a very public facing government issue that was human rights, we provide law, provide food, provide water, provide uh, accommodation. But what did it mean for the private sector? Actually, in 2011, you then had the publication of the UN Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights. And that was a landmark document. And there's John Ruggie, one of my colleagues at Clifford Jones, Ray Lindsay, she supported in the publication of that. And that document set out in pillars, areas of responsibility for the states and for the organizations. And suddenly, for the first time, there was an actual articulation on what does human rights look like from the private sector. Now, I say private sector because for me, global sporting events are part of the private sector. Yes, they are hosted by countries. And then they're laid out and delivered by the private sector. But you notice both my hands right now are up because one is for the government and one is for the private sector. That was what the UN Guiding Principles did. It said, this is where governments, your responsibilities end. And as the point of ending your responsibilities is where the responsibilities of the private sector begin, which meant both of them had to work collectively to deliver that. Now, that isn't something that happens very frequently in, a, in, in the rest of world considerations. But in sport, in mega sport in particular, that is signed, sealed, and delivered day one because each of these events are so large, they require intervention from the governments. They require that intervention from the private sector. And you asked me the simple question, how can sport drive that? Well, let's go back to the governance of the private sector. Let's go back to the policies from the government. Both of those should be working together to ensure that actually there is accountability, there is transparency, there is literacy, there is inclusivity on exactly how decisions are being taken and made that could or could not result in harms to individuals. Now, we're quite well versed in things like health and safety, for example. It's not a human right. I mean, it, it should be. I mean, everyone should be safe in their workplaces. There are various other regulatory protections for that. The ILO is a great um, flag bearer for this. Um, but actually, what you're saying is, because of the policy that the ILO has put in place, the IFC labor standards, all these other landmark um, documents, we're able to adopt those 
and drive those through the entire structure all the way down to that individual construction worker, individual hospitality worker, um, to ensure that their rights are protected. And those rights include things like the right to have safety at their workplace, the right to actually be able to express themselves, um, whether uh, in any form, candidly, um, and also things like simple things like being paid a minimum wage. Um, they should not be employed into slavery or or be bonded into labor. And those are where, you know, I, I started by saying sport is an ecosystem. Sport is an industry. We get that, but sport is an ecosystem because of the industry itself has so many variances in the players. It has all of the private sector players from construction to mining, to, to development, to transport, the list is endless, financiers, of course. And then it has the government. And that alignment between the two is, you know, if you can get that right, you, you can change a lot of industries through sport, through the ecosystem of sport. So just on that note, I want to give a practical example, and please tell me I'm wrong, but you just sparked it when you're talking about the public sector and countries holding the events. Surely there, there must be another pillar of community where the one that came to me while you're talking was when the women's England team won the um, the Euros. The next day, there was a public uh, sort of declaration to the government to have more girls playing at schools, which I don't know if that's more human rights, but it's more equality and equal access to play in that sport. But is that an example how it's drip fed down when there's good sport policy and also inspiration and like right back at the uh, start of this podcast, the storytelling of how sport can inspire others, in this case, girls playing more football and, and also having role models. So, but that's another component. But I love your thoughts on that. Two pieces to what you've asked me. The first one is actually, let's start at the back. The first one is storytelling, and the second one is law. And there's the distinction between the two on this example. So what I'm referring to is legal protections, whether by law, whether by contract, that actually carry through and hold people to account where they fail to do something, which means if harm has occurred, you will provide a remedy. Somebody will be compensated, somebody will be provided for, someone will look after them. The, the second example, which is, that equality in sport, there should be equality in sport. So that should not have been the case to begin with, but accessibility to sport can be increased at all times for everybody, not just women. There's a lot of other challenges in sport, including by race, including by other uh, metrics, um, but equality 100% can be addressed. Now, that part is the inspiration. That is the power of sport as a community and social good. That is the ability when people say, Sport has a power for good. That is what they're talking about. This is the positive result of sport, which is that girls get up and go out to the field because they believe they want to be like the, the lionesses, right? And that's, see, I've learned the technical terms there, by the way. Hey, yeah. Um, hey, but uh, that, that's a really good example of the storytelling part of it, which is what is the story? Now, I wear a wristband, which not all viewers will be able to see. It says more than equal. And this is another organization that I've been setting up with, uh, with one of my clients and they are looking for the first female world champion uh, in motorsport. Formula One, motorsport, yeah. Formula One on. in particular, uh, but yes, motors all across motorsport. And what does that mean, right? So it's, it's quite convenient for us to be able to say, oh, they're just gonna go and find a, a girl and sponsor her and hopefully she wins. No, this is systems change. 
this is a whole new league. What we're saying is we're going grassroots, we're gonna find that place, gonna create the structure. That is legal accountability. That is contractual accountability. The story that we're hoping to tell is that one girl, one girl makes it. 70 women have been into space. Two women have raced in Formula One, right? We should not be that, that badly off at this point in time. But the storytelling is that the ecosystem together works through legal structures, through, through really good measures, people aligning objectives along the way, people are working with the governments, people working with the private sector. So that at the end of this day, at least one woman makes it to the top. And that's where the storytelling begins because when they see her, there will be parents who will be convinced to take their kids to the tracks. And there will be all sorts of other endorsements, sponsorships, grants coming through to help these girls get there as well. That is where, you know, when I say policy systems changes, that's what you're looking for is not necessarily top down, but working together. And I, I like the fact that you said, isn't the one third piece the civil society? It absolutely is. That voice is so critical. You know, you saw it in, in recent happenings as well with Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, really shining that very bright spotlight on some very serious issues. And, you know, that is a fundamental role. That is the role that creates the collective action. That is the role that creates the dialogue. That is the role that actually turns around and says, we needed boots on the ground to know this. And the reality is to go back even one step further, you said human rights are a challenge because of jurisdictions. And I agree with that. I don't actually know at any given point in time what's happening within the rest of London, let alone what's happening in Karachi where I come from, let alone what's happening in a postcode in Karachi where I come from. We need, the, the, we need those voices, we need the journalists, we need those activists, we need that group of people to stand up and say, this is what I found. And then we need the lawyers who I don't think necessarily should be taking neutral positions on these. I think lawyers should be advising their clients and saying, actually, you can do this and you can do this, but also do it by making sure there's no harm caused. This is in your best interest. Um, and I think that's the world I would love to see lawyers operating within. And also, especially I would say within the sports world where if I may be so honest, I would say that sport has a long way to go not just football, I'm talking about all sport has a long way to go in protecting children and upholding human rights, in creating the infrastructure, the governance within the sports organizing, the organizing bodies, and the policy at, you know, at actually being able to work with bodies like the ILO to say what needs to change, work with UNICEF to say what needs to change. We shouldn't be living in a world where, where children are, are endangered, or people are, are being abused. It's just it doesn't, it, I can't, I can't justify a cost for that totally agree and that's how we got connected everybody was at the Sega integrity week and my session was all about well half of the session was about um safeguarding children in sport and why policy from actually the, you know every aspect is vital and um just on that note i always like to share how connected like that is how we got connected actually it was the second evening um david introduced himself we we're having a fantastic conversation um i think even david greverberg got brought up who's been a podcast special guest and honestly we hit really well and for me that's why I had to get David on the show because he, he just works on different projects but there's one thing I do want to mention is and we had this on a whatsapp call which I think is important because we've talked about nearly every aspect but we haven't talked about the countryside and I'm being more general now but you said to me Ed with regards to governance policies at global sport and events there is that 
sort of country and politics perspective. You said Ed, there's this political perspective of how things are looked with a certain country's culture, and then there's political action for positive change. Would you mind just sharing the differences and, and also what you meant? Because for me, that's really powerful. Because if countries get this, I personally believe how they run sporting events, as an example, it's going to be a lot smoother from all the pillars we've talked about in this whole conversation. Look, I mean, it's 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 probably some parts of this may be obvious to many. That one of them really looks at the action. What is really going on? And I think I'd like to take a step back first to be like, why did this comment even come about? The comment came about because it's it's really important to see where countries have come to and where countries are coming from. It's it's very difficult to have a discussion with somebody if you you take a static moment and then build your entire argument around that static moment. There is always, we are dynamic as beings and so we will always progress or we will always be in movement in respective. And I think the action element is sometimes you see ac actions taking place in the on the ground in countries which are misaligned with the perspective of government or the policies of government. What I mean by that is let's take, let's take the US by one example, where you have laws um, at a federal level on all sorts of protections. But then you are hearing about very unfortunate decisions being taken at a state level. For example, um, the banning of abortions. You have other um, say no to gay um, legislation coming into certain states. And this is, you know, it's, it's, it's worrying. It's worrying because at the one hand, you've got the policy, but the action doesn't meet the policy. You are seeing people being pushed through in, in, in positions of victims where, where it could have been avoided because policy was different. And vice versa, you're seeing the opposite happen in many other countries where, for example, you might hear certain, certain uh, sexuality, right? Let's use that as, a, as an example. Um, and I in no way suggest that people living in some of these jurisdictions aren't in danger, but there are people who will say that actually I have lived here and I have felt safe before. And this is coming from people, not, it's not my experience, this is my, my heard experience rather than my lived experience, where they do say that yes, the government doesn't uphold this because of religious cultural reasons, but actually I have never felt threatened as a result of this. And those are very different perspectives because when we look at certain countries, we have a political perception of what is happening. When we look at the action that is required or the action being taken place or the action that has happened, we are able to actually understand really how is this, how, what, what is the variance? You said, you know, this has a huge opportunity for sport. I agree with that. I think it is possible that sport could be probably the one tool that brings these two pieces together. Um, it's challenging, but it could be done. And I, when I look at the United 26, upcoming um, games, for example, Canada, USA, Mexico. That's actually 13 legal jurisdictions. And it's gonna be a lot. Action and policy across all of those is very, very challenging. But actually, because sport can come in and say, this is the World Cup we're hosting, this is what we believe in, this is what we stand for, this is the action we deliver. Suddenly, the policy will need to match the action or create room for that action. And once the actions happened, the policy can then be implemented or changed or moved in the right direction. Now, utopian, potentially, but worth considering. And I think this is very important because there are not many other 
modes that can do that. And what I mean by that, so when you look at the Olympics, even in London 2012, when it came here, um, it basically got the keys to the, to the city, right? There, were, there was a London 2012 Act, which was actually to say, for this period, the laws change candidly, right? There, there is actually that much, that much alignment between the, or the size of the sport versus what is actually being um, delivered. Those sort of tools create very distinct opportunity to say, if the country can do it for this window, then it can do it beyond the window too. That is, that is the gap that we're trying to bridge here, which is we are putting that onus, and I believe rightly so on some of these sports organizers to say, if you're able to actually create that governance, create that policy that you can implement during that game's time, we can probably make that work for the rest of time. And it's totally worth the investment from you guys to try and get there. And let's start simple. Let's start with things that we all commonly agree on. Let's, let's try and actually ensure that nobody dies in a World Cup. You know, that would be, that'd be good. Not even one person, zero. Let's make that our achievement. Everyone, I think, would commonly agree that that would be something that is beneficial to everybody. Um, and then let's start tackling the more the ones that are supported quite heavily, things like financial crime, right? Bribery, corruption, money laundering, which there are financial regulators in every jurisdiction for this. Let's work with them. Why not? Your sport, I get it, but your big money sport, your mega sport, that's why you're called mega. So let's work with the other regulators to help you help them help each other. And hopefully by the end of this, there's so much to be learned from this that we can actually create common systems. And let's not forget the one biggest variable that nobody seems to talk about, tech. Now, the use of technology has been challenging. It has had its, its issues, data privacy being a key one. But getting that right for the game, creating opportunity, opportunity for those who've suffered harms to actually report in, understanding how to process those complaints as they're received, triaging them, managing them, remedying them, providing that comfort back to the people and the family, supporting them and their processes, creating that bubble that, that allows them to actually express the harm that was felt, whether it's sexual harassment, whether it, it's, it's racial abuse, whatever it might be. Think of that. Think of that if it left, that technology was made, used, worked, and then went around the world. Think of that was being yeah. For the right reason. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's unique. There's not, many in, there's not many ecosystems that can do that. There is genuinely not many besides sport that can actually achieve that. And that is why we have these discussions around sport. That is why, as a lawyer, sometimes you sit down and think, am I into player transfers? No, I don't even know which players play where. But why do I still look at sport? Because I see that opportunity for sport to be that driver, to lead from the front, and even though it's, like I said earlier, I think sport has a long way to go, but I still think sport can make up that pace and overtake the rest because it will get that support to do so. Its fans want it. Candidly, the fans want it. The athletes want it. Let's focus on them. Put them in the middle of this conversation. Put the governance around them to support them. Put the policy around that to support the governance and the athletes and the fans. Suddenly you've got a working system. Um, as long as you keep the wheel spinning. My goodness, I hope people are taking notes because that one question could be a whole podcast <laughs> itself, a whole summit. Uh, I think we could change the world with that one part, but uh, but decode each of the sec sections. We could be here literally all day, literally looking at each component. But look, David, I've really enjoyed this conversation, but just reflecting 
what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey looking back right now honestly the learning it's i've there's two things honestly well the learning is one i i just came into this completely cold as i mentioned at the start of this podcast but it's also been such a beautiful community to walk into where people are genuinely passionate about this and i sometimes don't get it i sit there being like i don't understand why and it's just a welcoming space and i'd love for that to be all of society sometimes that we all have a common purpose that isn't who do we not like but actually is we just want to watch really good sport and yes it gets competitive but at the end of those matches people go home and they 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 drink together and eat together and party together and as they walk out they talk about how great that goal was or how how you know how the the grass wasn't green or whatever it is but there was always something to be talked about and i was just like that is such a beautiful way to create society to create that that community and yeah it's it's been eye opening for me personally and i absolutely love that experience i just think you got to be curious you got to be curious in this world and that's one place where the, you know it's 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 a, it's got potential it's got so much potential and i'd love to see, i'd love for that to be the part we look at and not all the negative aspects we see about it as well i'd love for the headlines to be great game not great game but all of these issues happened totally agree and i love the part at the end with the curiosity and as always david i like to finish with an inspirational question you're going to like this one considering at the beginning of this conversation you said i don't really like sport ed but i do want you to share three tips of why and it is used a lot, this word, but I think for you, I get it and I hear it. You've provided case studies. You've given layers of examples from a governance and policy standpoint. But would you mind just sharing three tips why having a purpose in the sports industry is key? It, not just being in sports law or law in sport, just in general, why purpose is, it is vital in how you show up in the industry and what we all do. So I love your three tips on that, please. Oh, I don't know if it's, it's going to be as many as three, um, but the first reason you have a purpose, candidly, is because you need to know what you're doing there. And so you'd want to go in and say, either I'm part of something or I want to change something. And that's a that's a pretty, pretty good place to start. The second step is, if you decide that you're part of something, figure out what you can change. Um, because you know, I think we all agree commonly that that this is going to be this, this can do with some help. I also think at that point, be ready for a challenge. It's it's not going to be easy, right? Like you're 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 being ambitious. You're being you're changing status quo. That's not going to be easy. But if you believe in it, if that is your purpose, then you will do it. And I assure you, not only will you would you find the right people, you'll find the right space, you'll find the right means, and you will get it done. So that's that's my 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 two big ones. But because you forced me into three, instead. To what what do you aspire to? Honestly, having a purpose makes you smile, and that's a really good trait to have for people. When you when you walk into a room and your light, eyes light up, I've heard people talking about cement drying, but they love it, and it is great. I can listen to them for hours. Honestly, if nothing else, have a purpose because it gives you a reason to smile, and that will go a long way in your interpersonal discussions. That'll go a long way in how you you interact with people. It'll also go a long way in how you've managed challenges because things don't always go your way. That is the reality of our world. And being able to get up, put a smile back on your face and keep going. Yeah, you've done well. Congratulations. 
I love that. And you probably can tell I've got a big smile while I podcast. <laughs> uh, but you're so it's so true. I can really connect to what you just said. But look, David, for listeners listening in, how can they connect to you online? Like where are the best places to go uh, to learn from you or, or follow you? Look, LinkedIn is the best place to find me. That's where a lot of my content goes out. That's where a lot of my conversations happen. It's where I connect with people. I'm otherwise pretty atrocious at social media. So it's the best I got. That is great. To all the listeners listening in, that LinkedIn link will be in the show notes and with regards to the blog post. But look, David, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Ed, as always, thank you so much for having me. You do a great job with this. Keep up the good work. And thank you for having me as a guest. Thanks, everyone, for listening in as well. My goodness, this is why I enjoy podcasting. And my goal each week is to always provide you different topics, different special guests from different backgrounds, different industry sectors. And for me, having David on the show was really unique. To have somebody who is very passionate about law, but has such a real interest and real passion, can I say, with regards to human rights and sports policy. For any lawyers listening in, I hope you can see the transferable skills that you can apply from your studies, then like figure out those topics that resonate with you, and then you apply your legal services into that area. Like One thing I want to highlight as a recap is people hire you for your skill sets and your services through you and what you do in that particular industry sector. In this case, it's legal services, not because of your interests. I think that's so powerful. It was very hinted throughout this podcast, but people hire you for your skills, not your interests in sport. I think that's really key. And when you can understand that and then apply it, the more likely you're going to pursue a career and what you really want to do in the sports industry. But it is tough, as David said. But what I also enjoyed from this conversation is the importance of being creative. I know uh, this was more from a legal standpoint. When you're a lawyer, have that creative mindset at the right period of time on the certain cases. But in general, when you become creative, it actually helps you think outside the box and actually find maybe better solutions that you never thought of. That's how I utilize creativity. And then also another point is curiosity. I firmly believe when you have curiosity, it leads to a more in-depth interest where you're really figuring out what that interest you have and how you want to learn more in that particular area or most importantly, how you can be the person who can solve it. And without a doubt, as a common theme with all the podcast special guests I've had, doesn't matter what sector, they are always trying to be better problem solvers. And when you have that in mind, that doesn't mean they know all the answers, by the way. If anything, they're asking more effective questions with regards to the solution they're trying to create or collaborate with people to find that solution. That is the beautiful thing of sport governance. That's a really great thing what David's doing. He's being a problem solver on such a big topic with regards to human rights and sports policy and using sport as the connector to achieve positive results in our global society. Like David said, at the end of the day, we're all on the same planet. So why compete on certain things like human rights where we all live and breathe the same air? So look, I really do hope you've enjoyed this, but from a sports career standpoint, if you have an interest in policy, I hope you can see what's out there 
with regards to how sport policy is applied with regards to global sport industry events, um, with regards to the different events like the Paralympics, Olympics, World Cups, the policy behind it whilst that competition is going on. Th for me, this is where I get my curiosity is it's more than just a football game, even a final. For me, it's what change is happening off the pitch during these mega events to create positive change. So look, I really do hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have. And again, finishing off with those sports career tips, always have a purpose in what you're trying to achieve. I know that it's used a lot in today's world and social media, and it's used a lot on this podcast. But when you have purpose, you have clarity. When you have clarity, you have a real direction in what you want to do and what you want to achieve. But most importantly, you're going to make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. David said, to create a purpose, the first step is to be part of something. And then the second step is to figure out what you can change. And then be ready for a challenge to fulfill that purpose. Mm -hmm.